every year, uh, one way or another, in some areas of uh, perhaps confusion and what should we do and how should we do it. Uh, I'm not going to all the scriptures, but uh, God has not pleased been pleased with the church. We know that. He blew it apart. And there are several scriptures <clears throat> which indicate specifically his being upset with the feasts. Uh, perhaps the time, but also it's very clear uh, the manner in which they were kept. In Isaiah 1, it talks about the sins of the people and how God is going to uh, bring it down to a very small remnant in verse chapter 1 verse 9, uh, because essentially of sin and not living up to the standard of God. So when it says, I don't like your feasts, a few verses later, it's not referring just to the calendar, though it certainly could be in part, but conduct is more important than anything else, and it is that way with everything in the church. Um, we need to understand and I think that we are aware of this by now, certainly, that the Word of God has always been the standard. From the time that God caused it to be written, it has always been the standard to live by. Now, we know that all the instruction here is something that is very difficult for each and every one of us to live up to. Uh, mankind has had problems following God's instruction from Adam and Eve down to the present and on into the future somewhat. God is going to do some very dire uh, punishment and make sure that a new world comes that is according to His way. Now, very few in the church understand that the church was blown apart, including each and every piece, of which we are some, because of God's dissatisfaction. Now, there is mercy, there is grace, there is forgiveness. Because God understands that we are human, He understands our frame. There are many things that indicate that God is a very forgiving God. But the world has twisted that out of context, and they think God forgives everything so you can do anything. But we live only under grace. Now, we live under grace, but we are also accountable to do works. Now, God is willing to forgive a great deal of error, of sin, and mistakes. The Bible is very clear on that. He's forgiven you, and He's forgiven me, and He's forgiven a lot of people for our sins and our errors. But there is a point at which God says, I am not going to forgive this, I expect a higher standard. So what went on in Worldwide Church of God was closer to what God wishes and desires by far than the Methodist, Baptist, Catholics, Hindus, ad nauseum. But it was not at an acceptable standard which he was willing to forgive and overlook. Therefore, he said, I will destroy the former temple, Worldwide Church of God, and I will start a new temple. And it will be spiritually above that which I spewed apart. 
So, if we look at the feasts from the standpoint of God being in particular upset with some of that, then we need to search and figure out what is the standard God is seeking from us. How can we do it in a way that he is willing to, whatever sins, mistakes, problems we have, he is willing to overlook and allow us to continue and hopefully to thrive. So I don't intend today to be a lecture on how bad we are. I want it to be a dissertation or an examination of some of the scriptures about the feasts so that as we approach the feast, we might be able to be thinking, uh, planning, and preparing to do it in a way that would meet a standard that God is willing to live with. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly because we are imperfect. But can we improve upon and make it better than what it used to be, and perhaps even better than what we have done in the past? since we came out and apart. So let's go, first of all, to Leviticus 23, where he lays out the Feast of the Eternal. He starts with the Sabbath. He goes through Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, and comes down to Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm going to cover primarily the Feast of Tabernacles, but there's a great deal of overlap with Passover, and that is because those are the only feasts that have more time. Pentecost, Trumpets, and Atonement are all one-day feasts. So they're, and they're all three holy Sabbaths, holy convocations. So they're pretty well covered as to what our conduct must be. But when we come to Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, it appears that there could be some options. And clearly people have taken different options and certain things to do with the, the Passover season and the Feast of Tabernacles season. So I want to try to get a bit of an overview and maybe some specifics about the instruction of God and try to apply the principle of these scriptures to various aspects of keeping the feast. Uh, questions come up about dwelling in booths and what does that mean today? Uh, what about working during the feast? Uh, Passover and Feast of Tabernacles. Is that something that we should be doing? Uh, some of those things may not appear to be completely clear when you read through there. So I want to see if I can build a picture here of what God intends and what perspective He was looking from when He caused to be written what was written. Sometimes we need to understand context and circumstance in order to be able to apply the principle when conditions may not be exactly as they were. For instance, they didn't have automobiles when the time that the law was written. So there's nothing in here that says how you should drive an automobile, is there? So you say, oh, I can just drive it any way I want. And I can have lunch on my knee and be texting with one hand and driving with one thumb on my knees. And I can have the phone, you know, well, I guess the phone you're texting, that takes 
kind of two hands, really. Uh, and, and I can be reading a magazine on the other knee while I drive. Because the Bible doesn't say you can't. Okay? Now, they're beginning to make some laws from men that tell you what conduct you can have. And they're getting laws in some, some states against texting. I saw a statistic the other day that says you are 23 times more likely to have an accident while texting than not. You're 23 times more likely to kill your neighbor. Now, is there a principle involved here somewhere? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? You're also 23 times more likely to kill yourself. So you see, God does say something about driving cars. He says, be careful, protect your own life, and protect that of your neighbor. And when we're driving, we need to take that into consideration. Is what I'm doing dangerous to others? How should I handle that? Now, I'm not going to start giving you a whole bunch of rules about how you should drive. But God has something to say, in principle, about everything. And I use that as just an example to introduce this, that while God may not always say in so many words, you shall not or you shall, some things he puts that way, but the Ten Commandments are really very short, aren't they? There's only ten things there. But those specific commands can be applied to a wide gamut of subjects because the principle behind them governs every part of our lives. So it is our duty to learn wisdom in how we apply His laws, His rules. And really, the Ten Commandments are a pretty long document compared to how Christ sum them up. He said, love God above all and love your neighbor as much as yourself. So he summarized everything written here in about two sentences. But then he wrote the rest of it to explain how to apply those sentences. And then when you come to a modern world which was not exactly the same as it is today, we have so many, many more things that we have to learn to apply the principles of God's law and His way in how we treat our neighbors and how we uh, relate with God. So let's, with that in mind, go down here to Leviticus 23 and uh, pick it up in... Verse 34, speak to the children of Israel, that would be you, we're spiritual Israel today, saying, the fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Eternal. Uh, I've been in contact with a fellow in India who's doing his best to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and all the holy days of God now, and is facing opposition, of course, because he says, nobody here is doing this but me. He calls himself a pastor, and he has a small flock. Uh, he's giving a series of sermons during the feast this year about should Gentiles keep the feast. 
What about Colossians 2 and not letting any man judge you about the feast, which different churches use to say they're not to be kept? And he has several things. He has asked me to send him some input to help him with his sermons. In fact, he told me they would love to have me come down to India for the feast this year. But uh, I wrote back and said, I have a flock here that needs care as well. And I had to decline, but I said, if, if things go on and we'll see how things work, there might be a possibility someday I could come down there. I didn't promise it. And I said, I'm not promising anything, but I'll certainly keep it in mind in, in case we, you know, and we see what happens. But here's a man who is standing up against all the religion around him and sticking up for keeping the feasts of God. And I, I find that encouraging and told him so. We've had quite a bit of email communication. But we know that the New Testament is full of indications that the feast was to be kept. And uh, I will let him know in Zechariah, it says that all peoples, all the Gentiles will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the world tomorrow. So it's not just for Israel, but for everybody. He's on the right track. I, I hope to give him some information that will help him prove what he's trying to show people. So it doesn't include just Israel. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So the first day is a Sabbath, no work to be done. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation to you. So that again is a Sabbath, a holy gathering, commanded assembly. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation. So, the first and last days are holy convocations and Sabbaths. But here he is talking about the feasts themselves inclusively and says that they are to be holy convocations. In other words, uh, as it says in another place, three times... In the year shall all your males come up to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. So it is commanded of every family to have at least one representative there. It is shown in many places in the scriptures that wives and children should come if at all possible, but if the way be too far or other conditions are there, then the male is to appear. So everyone's welcome and everyone should come if possible. A woman, a week or two or three from delivering a child, uh, especially when she had to ride by camel, mule, or horse, or walk, might not have made the trip, you understand. But the husband was to leave his wife to have the baby and go. He wasn't to say, well, I know you're about to have a baby, I want to be here for that. No, he was commanded to go regardless. These are the feasts which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the eternal, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. And it showed that there were to be sacrifices and offerings given on each day of Passover, the days of unleavened bread, and on each day of the feast. We won't go back into all of that and go through them all, but 
Uh, there were a certain amount of sacrifices that had to be done on each day, not just on the holy days. So there had to be someone there, I guess, doing those things throughout the feast. Just as a side comment as we move on. Uh, and this says, besides the Sabbaths of the Eternal, which were the, the regular Sabbaths, which are mentioned in the beginning, and maybe even the Sabbaths during the feast, uh, that you were to give these offerings and so on on their particular day. And besides your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings, which you give to the Eternal. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Eternal seven days. So they were to go up and to keep a feast unto God seven days. Now, if they lived five miles, fifty miles, a hundred miles uh, from Jerusalem, they were to go up and keep the feast seven days the whole time. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. So, an indication here that it was a positive thing that you went up to keep, and you kept seven days. Did that mean that you drove back and forth from home or from your job uh, and worked during the feast? That has been proposed at times over the last 55 years that I know of, and was handled a certain way. We'll discuss that more as we go on. Now here's some additional instruction, verse 40. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees. Now it was a holy convocation, a Sabbath, and no servile, that is, normal work was to be done, but part of the work that was allowed on that day was making a booth. Other places say you could cook on the holy days. That was the only kind of labor that was allowed. Except here is another indication. You didn't necessarily build it before time, but it was part of the ceremony, part of the understanding that they were to take on the first day, not necessarily before. I think we may have misunderstood that, and we've always tried to get it all ready before the feast. But this says do it on the first day. The boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God seven days. Now, does that mean, then, that we have to go out and find some palm trees? Good luck. And if you do find some, will it be legal to cut them down and help build yourself a temporary dwelling? Uh, boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook. Would somebody show me the brook and the willows? Uh, there's a principle here. He's using temporary type materials. Not lumber, not stones, not permanent housing, but the leaves of the willows begin to wither up, don't they? Palm fronds even would. Uh, the various types of thick trees, the boughs of thick trees, perhaps cottonwoods or Chinese elms or whatever that have thick leaves and boughs. But in a period of eight days, they would begin to wither up 
might even become see-through. Uh, you can see out. You have windows everywhere between the withered leaves. I don't know. But the point is, it was temporary. So, we can apply the principle here without having to go and steal trees from St. George uh, of having something temporary that is such. And you shall keep it a feast to the eternal seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Well, we are begotten into the church of spiritual Israel. And, as God would put it, he speaks of things that are not as if they already were. He is expecting our birth to occur at his return, when we will become spirit. So, uh, we are begotten and headed toward being born into the kingdom of God and are the spiritual Israelites today. Now, Christ kept these days as he lived on this earth, in the New Testament, not just the Old. Let's go to Deuteronomy 16. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Eternal your God. For in the month of Abib the Eternal your God brought you forth out of the Egypt by night. Here's the sacrifice before God, the Passover, in the place which the Eternal shall choose to place His name there. Now there has been some confusion about where God places His name. And any man who wants to keep a feast decides where he will place God's name. I think it is important that we understand where God has himself placed his name. Is there such a place? Are there places today or only one place? God tells us where to keep the feast. That is a very important part of the instruction. Where God has placed his name. Now, I can place his name, or you can, anywhere we choose. Orlando, Anaheim. Uh, what's the place in Missouri everybody goes? Branson. We can place his name in some of those entertainment capitals. But does God place his name there? Does God place his name in a big city? A metropolitan area? Those are questions we need to answer. If you're going to go up to keep the feast before the eternal, you better go where he places his name. It doesn't say we place it, it says he does. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Now, Passover, the reason I'm going through this as well, is we have to go up to keep the feast. And where, he says. So remember the who, what, where, when, how series about the feast. You have to answer the same six questions. We're starting to cover those. Who? The spiritual Israelites. 
and ultimately the whole world, be they born Israel or of a Gentile nation. And what is the feast? Then we have to discuss where, when, and how. The when has to do not only with the seventh month, fifteenth day, which is very clear, but we have to determine what is the fifteenth day of the seventh month. Can it be postponed a day or two if you don't like when it falls? Or does it have to fall according to God's heavenly calendar? So when is also an important factor, but it's only one of the important factors that we must discuss. Uh, I'm not going to get into the calendar today. That isn't the purpose. I think we've already addressed that, and I think that we're doing it as correctly as can be done with a 365 and a quarter day year, which will change shortly. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread, even the bread of affliction, uh, that you remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. We are to remember God's deliverance and what he did for our forebears and what he will do for us today. And then he talks about... uh, The Passover itself, it says from even to even. Uh, Where is that? On down a little bit, I guess. Or maybe I already went past it. But there are people that say that that the uh, Sabbaths are from morning to morning, sunrise to sunrise. They've written whole big articles about it. And yet, when it talks about atonement, it says from even to even. And when it talks about the Passover, it says even at the going down of the sun right here. Of course, they try to say, well, the sun starts going down at noon. No. The sun goes down when it goes down, when you can't see it anymore. The day is from sunset to sunset. So, we have to get a lot of things straight, don't we? All right, let's go to Exodus 34. Um... Verse 22, Exodus 34:22, And you shall observe the Feast of Weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your men, children, appear before the eternal God, the God of Israel. Now here we have something introduced, and that is he calls the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Ingathering the end of the year. Does that contradict what he told Israel when they came out of Egypt, that Abib or Nisan shall be the beginning of months when you came out of Egypt? That was in the spring at Passover time. No, that is when God's calendar goes from, from Abib 1 to Abib 1. But the financial year went from the end of the Feast of Tabernacles to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because God intended for Israel's way of life to be an agricultural way of life. That was his intention from the beginning. It is still his intention, and it has not changed. So the harvests were set up so that you had a spring harvest of certain crops, and 
you brought the produce and the second tithe of that to the feast to keep. But the great harvest, the big harvest of most crops was in the fall. And that was the end of the fiscal year. Now, over the years, the church said, well, you should keep your third tithe year based on the feast nearest your baptism or from the Passover if it was close. And I think that was somewhat an error. I think that it should be based on the end of the fiscal year. In other words, you have finished the year's work by the time the fall feasts come around. God set them late enough in the fall that the harvesting should essentially be done. The summer fruits have ripened, uh, the wheat harvest has come, and you should be able to finish up your year's work and bring some of the proceeds thereof to the feast. In other words, in an agricultural situation, the feast was a post-harvest post-work, if you will, celebration and a vacation of sorts. Now, he did that in the spring. We have, you know, even colleges and so on have spring break. We have a spring break as well. And Passover comes before you do most of your planting, before you start the uh, agricultural cycle. Now, some things like barley might be pr- planted earlier, and you would have a harvest in the spring. But most of agriculture occurs between May and September. So God has the feast cycle starting before you do the majority of your planting, and He has the Feast of Tabernacles after you have done your harvesting. That's the way he intended it to be. So when he set up the financial situation, it had to do with the harvest, not the beginning of the actual year of the calendar. There are two different years in that sense. The normal year that we use and go by as a calendar, because using that one starting in the first month of the year, gets us in correct sequence with all the holy days and everything that should happen within the year. So that is the daily use calendar, is the one beginning with the first of Abed. But because of the nature of life that God intended Israel to live, he had a fiscal year beginning or ending at the feast. So that's the way he set it up. The feast of ingathering at the year's end, or the revolution of the year, my Hebrew says. The revolution of the year has to do with the equinoxes. You have a spring and a fall. So those come into play when you come into uh, the feasts. Now, we'll build on this a little bit. Let's go to Nehemiah 8. I want to get some of these scriptures down before I make some comments about it, uh, though some come naturally as we read it. Nehemiah 8 and down in 14. Remember, this is a time of restoral 
uh, Ezra and Nehemiah came, and the stories about them came as a result of the ending of 70 years of captivity. So it was a restoral time when things were being returned to the way they should be. We have also just come through 70 years of living in the captivity of Babylon and the church being right in the middle of Babylon. And since that time, I think for a few people at least, God has offered an opportunity to go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And that is what we are here to do. And understanding that, we are in the position where God puts a great deal of responsibility upon our shoulders. And we'll see that as we go through. Uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 14. They looked at the law, and they found written in the law, which eternally commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mount, and fetch olive branches and pine and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. I know someone who wrote an article that said that it doesn't say back there in Leviticus that you have to build booths. It's just referring to booths. But here it says they did it in the manner in which it is written. In other words, it was a command. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate, gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness. So there was a renewal that hadn't been done since Joshua walked the earth. It needed to be done, and we need to be sure we do the same thing today. Now notice it didn't say it had to be in your house. It gave a fairly wide range here. It said the roof of your house, I'd hate to do it on mine, I might fall off. Uh, and in their courts, uh, area around your house, courtyard or, or lawn or yard, and in the courts of the house of God, around the building, but please not in the parking lot, too close, you might get run over, and in the street of the water gate and the street of the gate of Ephraim. So even in the streets of Jerusalem itself, you could build your booth. Now, people had homes, some probably had flat roofs, some may not have. Some may have had yards, some may not have. Uh, so they were able to do it in the courtyard of the temple or in the street. Uh, there were not automobiles, remember. Uh, so we have to apply the principle. I don't think putting it in the middle of the street out here would probably be the wisest thing for you to do. You'll need lots of orange cones and flashing lights uh, that may disturb your sleep. But you see, it's the principle that we need to get. Uh, there are lots of places on this land that I think would fit within that category. And most of us, well, we've tried to design this so that we're not like a town with no room. So there's, you know, you've got at least an acre. And if you need a bigger tent than that, I guess you can spread out somewhere else. 
But God gives a certain amount of leeway. But the point is, it is to be a temporary dwelling and you're to sit under it. Uh, what about cooking? What about the bathroom? Do you have to live on top of your house? Do you have to potty on top of your house? That could be somewhat difficult. The idea is that, and the principle, I think, is this. We should be in temporary dwellings. We should be in something that is not normal for us. There is a scripture, uh, where is that? We may run across it yet, uh, which indicates, now I lost my thought, eh? the alternative of old age is even worse, but uh, it'll come back maybe in a minute. The idea is that we are to remember, and maybe we will come to it, uh, that we're here temporarily. And that the Feast of Tabernacles represents a new time, a new era, a millennium. That we are only ambassadors here on this earth at this time. We are strangers here, pilgrims in the land. That our place of permanent abode is not here. Their place of permanent abode was not in Egypt, but they were to go to a promised land. And we have been promised this land, but we have not yet inherited it, but we will rule upon the earth once Christ returns, and it will be different. So we are to look upon ourselves as being transients on the move, headed for a different situation. Therefore, we are instructed to have, be in temporary dwellings. And I think the principle of that is you don't sleep where you normally sleep. You have a temporary place you move into, and you use that. I don't think that the principle there is an indication that we shouldn't go down into the kitchen and cook, you know. They didn't have refrigerators, but they had their cooking facilities in the house. Uh, they had maybe a fireplace, maybe they had some other way of cooking their dung in sticks, or on their dung in sticks, but uh, I don't think they necessarily moved the fire up on top of the house and did everything up there. Probably they slept there primarily, maybe they fellowshiped and visited there, uh, but some things in life kind of went on. If you had an outhouse, you still went down off the house or out of the yard into the outhouse. And I think that God would not have any problem with us leaving our temporary dwelling, whatever it might be, and going into the bathroom. It'd be hard to move the shower up there. So if you have to have the shower on top of the house, then maybe we should just forego bathing during the feast. That's good for fellowship. Stand way back and yell at each other. Well, you see, I don't know how they bathe then, really. And I guess it really doesn't matter, but I know how we bathe today. So the principle is, get away from that which is normal for you. In other words, be temporary. It reminds you that we are ambassadors and pilgrims. That's the whole idea 
and purpose for it is to remind us of a spiritual lesson. So exactly how you go about it physically, uh, there might be some room there for discussion and for use of wisdom and so on. But the, the point is still just as important today as it was then. They were in Egypt for a time. They moved out. And they were looking forward to a promised land that God had made for them. And they were to be reminded to look forward to what is to come. So that's why we will move out of our normal sleeping quarters and have something temporary. Seems to be essentially outside your house. Above, around, or out in the street. But not in your house per se is where you sleep. Now, other questions come up. What about someone who's an invalid in bed? Uh, what if Fred were still alive and in bed with cancer? I don't think God would obligate us to move him out into a tent under those circumstances. So we have to use wisdom in these, and all of us as a whole should be able to do that. But there could be circumstances where someone is an invalid or bedfast or whatever, where they uh, would have extreme difficulty. Some can't even go up a set of stairs, you know, without taking 15, 20, 30 minutes. So on top of the house, sans an elevator isn't the best idea. But maybe out in the yard or something else that fulfills the principle of what God is trying to get across, and that is that we are pilgrims and ambassadors looking for a new home. So how that applies to your circumstances, how you go about it, learn wisdom, but be sure you fulfill that uh, instruction. Matthew 17:2 is another good one from the New Testament. Uh, when Christ took them up on the mountain at the Transfiguration, uh, they saw Moses and Elijah, Peter and James, and was it John? Saw Moses and Elijah in the vision. So they understood the resurrections. They understood the looking forward from the Feast of Tabernacles to a time that those men would be resurrected and be available. So the first thing they said is, oh, it must be feast time. Shall we build booths, or tabernacles is the word they said. But it was only a vision. It wasn't time to do that. But their thinking was still along those lines. But belabor that. Let's move on. Uh, Luke 2:42. I don't want to run out of time. Uh, I won't go there, but it's, it's a scripture that says that Christ and his family went up to keep the Passover to keep the feast in Luke 2. I think I will turn briefly to the ones in John, uh, John 4.45. But see, they made an effort. They didn't live at Jerusalem, but they made an effort to go up to keep the feast. And I think that they stayed there through the feast. They did not go back home, back and forth, uh, to do whatever was to be done at home. The harvest was done. The year's work was done. So it was time for a vacation. You know, we're willing, most any time of year, whenever it moves us or we feel we have the opportunity to take so many days or a week or two and go back and visit family or friends, 
we vacation. We'll spend the money. We'll quit. We'll, we'll quit going to work even to take a vacation with family or to some place we like, be it mountains or beach or outer space. But we hesitate and waver when twice in the year, every six months, God says, spend a week with me. That sounds kind of strange when you think about it. God says, please come spend a week with me. And we say, well, but i got to work and i got to do this and i got to do that. I don't know whether I can really come spend... I can't afford to come spend a week with you, God. But some other time I can afford to spend a week to go with my relatives or go to the... wherever. Isn't that a little strange when you think about it? What are our goals? What are our priorities? What is our focus to be? Zechariah 14 says, Come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. And he put sacrifices in the Old Testament of different animals every day of that time so that they needed to be there to do that. And the focus was on God. The focus was not on, well, let's see, Church is over and we've got to eat and then we've got to run to work. Where's the focus? Is it on worshiping God, having fellowship with Him and fellowship with His people? Or is it on doing our thing and doing God's thing on the side? Continuing to do our thing and do His thing on the side. Is that what it means to go up to keep the feast in the place where He has established? Now, this isn't really a question if you live in Kansas or New York and you have to go to Arizona for the feast, because in so doing, you're getting far enough from your job you can't commute short of an executive jet. Uh, so you come to keep it the whole time. Does the principle apply in the same way if you live at the site of the feast? Because that's where... The problem has always arisen. People around Pasadena or people around Big Sandy. What did they do? The church always recommended that they not work during the feast, but they set their job aside, take off from work, and attend the feast. Now, in those days... uh, Well, no, not always. But some of the times they had a service every night, uh, twice on the holy days. But that still leaves opportunity, doesn't it? Well, I can work during the day if the service is in the evening, or I can work in the evening if the service is in the day. Is it complying with the principle of going up to keep the feast and worship the King, the Lord of hosts? Or does it divide our attention? God says that we cannot sit on the fence. We cannot serve two masters. Are we serving our master at work and trying to serve God at the same time? Is the house then divided? Is that something God would approve or be pleased with? Or does he want our 
attention, our focus, during that period of time. When he says, come up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, when you go on vacation to go to the beach or the mountains or to visit relatives, your attention is divided, is it not? You are focusing on the beach or the mountains or your relatives. Not as much on God. Now, when you're at home, maybe you have a routine whereby you take care of spiritual matters on a regular basis. But when you're on vacation or away, and you're with relatives that don't believe the same way we do, and they have a different schedule, it's very hard, isn't it, to keep your regular routine. They'll pull you away from it. So during that time, your focus is more on them or that beach than it is on God and what He's doing. It's a bit of a vacation from God. Now, we might say some prayers here and there, but when you're a visiting relative, your Bible study tends to fall off, your prayer tends to fall off, and you're focusing on activities and things to do with them and visiting with them. That's the way it works on vacation. Now, could the same thing be true when we visit God for a week and our attention and our focus is divided? Can we focus totally on God when we are trying to maintain a focus in making a living? Is that fair to God? I'm throwing these things out for your consideration. The Bible does not say in so many words, you shall not work through the Feast of Tabernacles or through the Passover season. It doesn't put it that way. God gives us room and opportunity to apply the principles of His Word and His intentions in our lives in whatever age we may live in. So let's understand what God wishes of us. He wants our undivided attention and focus on Him as King. That's what He desires of us. Not to be divided. John 4, verse 45, that I ever get there. Uh, then when he was come to Galilee, speaking of Christ, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went to the feast. So whatever he was doing, he dropped it and went to the feast and stayed there, and they talked with him. Uh, John seven fourteen. Now about the midst of the feast, Emmanuel went up into the temple and taught. So not just the first and last day, but he went up in the middle of the feast and taught. So he was there the entire time and taught in the middle. Now let's go to, let's see, 11.22, John. Then said Martha to Emmanuel, Lord, if you had... No, that's not what I want. I can't read my own writing. 10.22. It was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. So, uh, Emmanuel walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. That one doesn't really apply. That's the Feast of Dedication, not the, not the 
Peace Tabernacles, forget that. Uh, he was there for that, but that doesn't impact what we're saying today. Uh, but he did speak on the last great day of the feast as well. That's in another one here somewhere. Maybe I wrote down the wrong one. But we've seen several places where he said, go up to Jerusalem. That one's in Zechariah 14 for sure. It says when the Egyptian will not come up, he won't have any rain. So God obviously has placed his name in Jerusalem. Well, now what does Jerusalem mean? That could have several different definitions depending on how you want to look at it. If we go back to Hebrews 11, 22, and 23, to which we've referred often in the last few years, it shows that the church is Jerusalem. So if the church is Jerusalem, couldn't you go anywhere the church is? Wouldn't that be a place for the feast? In one sense, that might, could be true. And I think worldwide may have used that to have feasts all over the world uh, wherever they decided to place God's name. Now, God may have, in that sense, placed his name in Johannesburg or somewhere because that's where part of Jerusalem, the church, was. And those people certainly did not have the money to travel to Pasadena or to the Jerusalem in the Middle East uh, to keep the feast. It was a physical impossibility. So God may have, in a larger sense, allowed that. Now, Herbert Armstrong told us over and over, and I believe that he was correct, that you are responsible for whatever knowledge you have. If you don't have certain knowledge, you cannot be expected or held accountable for not doing it. So, the definition that might have been used in Worldwide, I don't know whether it was actually addressed or not, but I can see how it could have applied that wherever the church is, wherever Jerusalem the church is, could be a place you could keep the physical feast. By that very broad definition. Now, as we get closer to the kingdom of God... We need to draw our definitions down to what God is doing and where He is doing it. Do we not? Zechariah 14 says that all will come up to keep the feast at Jerusalem where the king is. He will be physically dwelling in Jerusalem, the holy city. And we will be there, if we're among the 144,000 as the bride of Christ, with him. And the whole world will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. Now, the Egyptian may not be a part of the church. Or the nation of, uh, what, Zebulun? Might be. But they all come up to keep the feast, or there is drought. So it is speaking of physical things, not spiritual rain, but physical rain, not physical, not spiritual Jerusalem, but physical, uh, physical Jerusalem. Yes, they will all go up there to keep it. So now, somewhere between that broad range of if you're in the church in South Africa, you keep it there, and the more finite and specific time 
or place during the time of the millennium, there's quite a different range of perhaps acceptable options. But the more you understand, the tighter it should become to the point that your definitions are more specific and you have to do according to the knowledge you have. Now let's take, for instance, Zechariah 2, where it says that Jerusalem in the end time, we're talking here about the time of the two witnesses in the end time latter temple that will be built shortly. A spiritual temple, and I am thinking now very likely a physical temple as well. Satan will build a counterfeit temple for the world to go to and for the Pope or whoever to set up his office in. God will also build a temple through his people for his people to worship in. And one will contrast the other. I think I can probably pretty well prove that. But, Zechariah 2, in the end time, says that Jerusalem shall be built as villages without walls, and that there will be much men and cattle there. Now, you could say this is spiritual villages, groups of God's people, but what are you going to do with the cattle? Do we have any spiritual cows? No, cows are physical. So, he is referring to physical villages that must be built in the end time. Now, we have recognized that, and we have defined it that specifically, and we have come out and built a village. Now, based on Zechariah 2, this is not the last village that will be built at the end time as the latter temple <coughs> is built. There will be other members of the spiritual temple who will come and build together in physical villages with men and cattle. So you're talking about a spiritual organism, the church, increasing, but you're also talking about the number of physical villages with men and cattle that will be increasing. So the definition of Jerusalem includes both the church and physical land and buildings and cows. Farm animals. It says, each man in Zechariah 3 will have his own vine and fig tree. Last verse of chapter 3. Well, God is going to put us back in an agricultural situation with vine, fig tree, cattle. That is what he originally intended, and it is how he wrote the instruction for Israel back in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He intended us all, ultimately, basically, to be farmers. Now, we might have some side jobs. Christ was a carpenter while he was on the earth. But that is not the optimal type of lifestyle that God wants. He wants it to be basically agricultural, though you still have to build houses and you still have to, to do other things in terms of living. But Christ was a builder. And I think that that's okay. But he was also living in an agricultural situation, as was Israel pretty much throughout their history. And as we started out in this country, nearly everybody was involved in agriculture in one way or another. 
And those who would change society away from God's way have slowly changed it to where we are city dwellers and we have big agriculture and very few small farmers and ranchers. That has to be reversed. And God wants us to do it in terms of villages. So, as those villages develop, the definition of where Jerusalem is will be shrunk a great deal. Now Jerusalem is not just the church and wherever you might be in the world, but now physical Jerusalem has begun to be developed as several small villages. I think perhaps seven, I might be wrong. So, does that change our definition of where we can keep the feast? Doesn't it have to be somewhere in what God in the end time defines as Jerusalem? Now, it may be that we have come to understand where the original, true Jerusalem is, where it will be built in her own place, as Zechariah 12 says. Now, that is not completely corroborated or completely proved yet. And I don't think then it is time to go there because we're not absolutely sure that is the spot. But we have acted on the knowledge we have and we have built a village, and I believe it is in the area God wanted it in. I learned that over the last 15 years beginning in 1994 to date, through a series of dreams, visions, and several years of of very intense study of the Scriptures and of the geology and the landforms around here. And I think that everything that was imparted by dream or vision has been corroborated in Scripture and in geology. That's why I came here. And essentially, that's why you came here once you understood that. So I believe we're in the place that God intends the villages to be built because they are in the environs of specifically the Holy Land and very likely the original Jerusalem. He has showed us clearly that Zion is here and that it was okay to give up the idea of Petra in the Middle East and that the true place of safety and refuge is Zion. Now, that's not news to any of you. But I think we need to review that in terms of where God would have us keep the feast. You see, the more information you have, the more you narrow the definition down. I think that if we chose to keep the feast anywhere but in this area, we would be violating... God's Word, because we are responsible for the knowledge that God has given us. So one of the things he may have been somewhat upset with in Worldwide, specifically the feasts, was how they were kept, where they were kept, and when they were kept. All that comes into play. You have to act on the knowledge you have. I think I would be sinning if I were to go anywhere but within a hundred miles of here to keep the feast. I believe that. 
And our knowledge may increase to the point that there is one specific location here in the area that we do need some time to go. But until that is proved, I think it's premature to try to go there to keep the feast. That may be the spot, but then there is a certain amount of chance that it's not and that it's somewhere else nearby. Until it's proved, we don't know for sure, and therefore we're not obligated to go there until we know that. So I think then Jerusalem as villages without walls may in some respects qualify better than even Zion itself, because Zion and Jerusalem were somewhat removed from one another in Scripture. You know the psalm we sing, 48? That Zion is the joy and the beauty of the whole land. Jerusalem is on, does on her north side stand. So somewhere north of Zion is Jerusalem. And the villages that we have built, according to Scripture then, are specifically a part of physical Jerusalem at the end. So the area God showed us to put it in is the area not maybe of the physical city, but is the area of Jerusalem and Zion. It is the environs thereof, if you will. So he has given us a better definition. And when you understand something better, then you do according to your better understanding, do you not? Now, people who don't understand what we understand are not obligated and responsible in the same way we are. But once we do understand, then we're obligated to do what we're supposed to. And that's the way it is when we first start learning the truth, isn't it? We might learn about the Sabbath, but we don't know yet about clean and unclean or the feast or something else. When we learn about the Sabbath, we start keeping the Sabbath. When we learn about the feast, we start doing that. And then when we learn the feast was should be in a smaller locale and done in a certain way, then we do that. Well, we didn't understand that at first. Now we do. Uh, it's part of the physicality of it. People say, well, it's just a spiritual temple at the end. What about Isaiah 44 and 45? I don't have time to go there. But it talks about someone who is unconverted, does not know God, who says Zion and Jerusalem have to be built. Now, I do not believe for one moment that someone who is not converted should have any hand in building spiritual Jerusalem, the church. It's not their responsibility. It's not something God would call them to do. But if he wanted a physical city and a physical temple built, he could use a physical, unconverted man, as he has in the past, with King Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Ahasuerus, on and on it goes, he could use them to facilitate and to help that operation. But that's just physical. And the 70 weeks prophecy ends 70 weeks after the uh, order to build Jerusalem back. I believe that to be physical Jerusalem, not spiritual because the two witnesses are told to build spiritual Jerusalem back before they ever begin to go to the world, etc. So you're talking about two different things here, but they combine. Uh, 
Uh, let's see, anything else here we need to cover in particular? First uh, Kings 8.2 might be a good one. It wasn't just the priests. It wasn't just the Levites. Levites. First uh, Kings 8, verse 2. Then Solomon assembled the uh, elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chiefs of the fathers of the children of Israel, King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Eternal, and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in that did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. <coughs> so the whole congregation of Israel was there during the feast. And they helped with all the things that needed to be done to keep the feast. Now, I think we have covered in principle the idea that God intended us to come up and to focus on worshiping during the feast, and that is to be our focus, not any other focus. We are to be undivided. A house divided cannot stand. Now, that has been customary in Worldwide Church of God to instruct people to come up to keep the feast. And we were encouraged, if we lived around Big Sandy, to take that time off and to come out and to keep the feast. That was the practice. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, and I think I'll wind this up here. We know that we need to, in some form or another, have a temporary dwelling to remind us to be pilgrims and ambassadors here, not to sit down permanently and say, this is my house, I will stay here. Um, we're not to do that. And that our focus is to be to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Not to be doing other things, and that, ag that the agricultural cycle was the basis for when the feasts were kept. And you kept the Passover before work started, and you kept the Feast of Tabernacles after work ended. So, in principle, God then says, you're not to be working at Passover time or Feast of Tabernacles time. Now, we have to put that into a principle and a context of the way we're currently living. Right now, we work pretty much year-round. That is not what God originally intended. He intended time off before and after harvest, and to use that time to come and worship Him. So, even though we have a different world, we need to learn to follow that principle because it is some of the most important time of the year. It's not like any other week. It is a very, very important week. And God is going to cause drought and famine and death to people in the millennium who do not come up and worship the King during the Feast of Tabernacles says so very clearly. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Here lays another responsibility, uh, responsibility upon us. Now I beseech you, brethren, 
by the name of our Lord Emmanuel, that you all speak the same thing. We need to have as a goal, as a purpose, to all speak the same thing. Now, in Corinth, that was not the case. But Paul wrote this to endeavor that it become the case. Okay? If it's not that way, it needs to become that way. We all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. Not some thinking this, some thinking that, some thinking something else. But it should become our goal and our purpose to all speak the same and not be divided in judgment, not be divided in practice, in administration, but that we all do things together because we've learned and proved that's the way it ought to be. Now, in some cases... The Word of God doesn't change, but administrations do. And Paul even said, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 12, or 11 or 12, that there are differences in administration. So sometimes decisions will be made that are physically different. We need to learn to determine the difference between administration and sin. Sometimes we get to thinking, well, the leaders don't do things the way I would do them, and somehow we judge them and say, that's not the way it ought to be. But God has given a certain amount of leeway to the priests, to the ministry, and so on, to make decisions, and hopefully to use the wisdom of God in so doing, in terms of certain administration. Administrate, it is, it is not administration to say we must keep the feast. That's clear in Scripture. Where, when, and how is fairly clear in Scripture. Exactly what time of day we meet is an administrative decision. And some of you might not like the way I administer it. Does that make it sin? No. I might say let's meet at 7 a.m. Some of you would not like that. Some of you might think that was a sin. Get up that early. Go to church. No, it would be an administrative thing. Stupid, maybe, but still within the realm of my jurisdiction. If I say ten, more of you will agree. If I say two, more of you will agree. Those are administrative things. But... Whichever way it is, instead of people griping, complaining, we need to come to say, okay, I understand that. That's administrative. I can live with that. That's not sin. Now, if it is sin, that's a different matter altogether. But what he's saying here is we need to all speak doctrinally, essentially, I think he's referring to, but administratively to some degree. All speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, and he puts it even more definitive, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, there is a mouthful. It is our explicit goal, as defined in this scripture, which is profitable for instruction and direction and righteousness and what's the other one? 
and Timothy. This scripture is the holy word of God. And he says that we need to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So, the things we've read today, there might be some opinion, there might be some option perhaps, to some degree on some of these things, but we should be working together to all look at it the same way, to do it the same way, and what part of it might be administrative, we need to do the same thing, so that we're perfectly joined together. My finger is perfectly joined in my hand. You couldn't do better if you tried. God knew what he was doing. It's hard to make, when you're building something, absolutely seamless joints, isn't it? Hard to do. Takes skill. God wants us to be joined together as a body. With no seams, no rips, no tears, no schisms. That is a goal we need to work at. Now, what if we have common employers? A lot of us work for maybe the same company. And some say, well, this is a fast day. I have to take off to fast. And others say, well, uh, I'll go ahead and work during the fast. And employers say, what kind of religion is that? Some of them do it this way. Some of them do it that way. Well, the fasts of the months that we keep are not designated as Sabbaths. So there's a certain amount of option there. But it could be confusing to an employer. It would be nice if we all decided to do it one way or the other, wouldn't it? Maybe less confusion. Maybe if you're the only one working at a certain place, it wouldn't be confusing. But now when it comes to the feast, and some go to the employer, and it's the same employer, and say, well, I must be off during this time. And one says, ah, that's all right, I'll work during this time. We're not perfectly joined We're not saying the same thing, and we're divided among ourselves, and we're certainly divided in the eyes of our employers. So, let's see if we can somehow fulfill 1 Corinthians 1.10. Can we all come to see things the same way and to do it the same way? Now, I'll leave it to your wisdom, your discretion. to try to work it out to fulfill this verse. Use wisdom, use guidance from God, use prayer, and come up with godly decisions. Some of these things are not absolutely clear-cut. But I think the very fact that God puts them in an agricultural context gives us a perspective from which to look, and that is, He has his feast before the real work year starts, and he has it after it's ended in the fall. So he intended people to be free from other things to come and keep the feast and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. You see the principle there? Let's try to apply those principles as best we can to our modern day way of life and obey God as best we can And all speak the same. Uh, That is something that God would have us do. And it's scripture that must be fulfilled. 
And remember that God holds us to a much higher standard than we lived in and worldwide. He wants us to do a better job of worshiping Him. He wants us to do a better job of keeping the feasts. A better job at everything we put our hand to do, we do with our might. So if we're going to keep the feast, let's do it with our might. If you go to war, do it with your might. If you work, do it with your might. If you keep the feast, do it the absolutely best you can. There is certainly a principle there. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it well. Do a good job of it. The best you possibly can. Otherwise, why bother? God wants us to be whole-hearted and worship Him with our whole heart. If I can take off to go visit relatives or go to the mountains, certainly I should be able to take off to worship God, wouldn't you think? Is not that the principle he would hold us to?